Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we will be talking with three of the four co-authors of our new book, The Politics of the Headscarf in the United States. Our guests are Boz Wellborn, Assistant Professor in the Department of Government at Smith College, Aubrey Westfall, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at Wheaton College, and Sarah Tobin, Senior Researcher at the Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Bergen, Norway. Fellow co-author Uzga Selig-Russell, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Gazi University, was unable to join our conversation. We spoke about their new book, which features the first large-scale academic and online survey on the topic of head covering in the United States, and which has direct implications for the policy community when it comes to formulating public policy geared at including minority groups in American political life. Well, hello, Boz, Sarah, and Aubrey. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having Thank us. Well, we're thrilled to have you on the podcast. Uh, you are the authors, co-authors of Politics of the Headscarf in the United States. One of the authors, uh, Ozga Selick Russell, is unfortunately unable to attend this podcast, but she's here in spirit. Yes, th- this is uh, just a fascinating book that is the result of, of a lot of research. And you have uh, had, a, had a survey uh, of over near with nearly 2,000 responses from Muslim American women across 49 states. This is a, a massive undertaking. And so, uh, in the broadest sense, after the survey, what were some of the eye-opening results that occurred uh, uh, from this study? Okay, I'd say the most central point is that Muslim American women are just that. Muslim American women. They're true patriots. They conceive of themselves as Americans. They don't desire to live anywhere else. And they feel deeply affirmed uh, in their faith and in their national identity as Americans. I would concur with that, basically. Uh, a lot of us going into this, we, we didn't necessarily expect to see that much of a, let's say, a difference in, in terms of like, you know, kind of what the practice of Muslim identity looked like, uh, but was really intru- instructive for us was to see that effectively the practice of American citizenship was really not that different from what you see across other religious groups as well. And our findings really affirmed that kind of what Aubrey just mentioned is that this is actually a population that has been surprisingly mainstreamed into the American experience. And yet the American mainstream itself, as we think about it, quote unquote, non-Muslim doesn't see it that way. And yet so much of the value of our research really showcases the fact that these are citizens in every sense of the word. And in some cases, even more more, uh, engaged in citizen-like behavior because they're very much active political participants. And they're also very much social participants in uh, what it means to be American as well as what it means to be Muslim American. In addition to the large survey that we conducted, uh, we also did 17 focus groups with 72 women, in seven American cities that all have large Muslim populations. And in each of these focus groups, in each of these interviews, in each of these times we spent with the women, we were overwhelmed by the hospitality that they showed, the generosity that they showed us, the ways that they welcomed us into their universities, into their homes, into their mosques, and into their lives. And they were all so willing to share who they were and what being a Muslim American meant to them, to us, uh, to a group of researchers uh, whom they'd never met, whom they had never encountered before uh, at every instance. And um, so uh, though they are also reflecting 
um, these aspects of uh, who they are to the wider public, it also became quite personal for all of us uh, during this research process. And I would like to add that one of the reasons why it became even more personal for us is because uh, we started this project in, what was it? I think it was 2010, 2011. We finally actually did some of the empirical portions of it in 2012 and 2013. And really, we've been working on it until the election, right? Until 2017, the presidential elections themselves. So we've sort of seen, you know, kind of Islamic identity be really instrumented in the political sphere in a way that uh, it hasn't been since 9-11, to be honest. So our research is sort of tracked the politicization of uh, Muslim identity and Muslim American identity as well across time. Yeah, your book uh, definitely emphasizes that 9-11 was a turning point for uh, the Muslim American women population, uh, but you do start the book also off with a chilling story of Trump and his rhetoric and how that has impacted uh, Muslim women uh, as well. Uh, so we're living in a, in a, a very a difficult age, a difficult time, where uh, you know 9/11 certainly um, the population was afraid to wear uh, any type of head covering, and, and now we're in a, in a renewed time of that being an issue. What are your thoughts of the current political climate and its impact on the American Muslim women population? Oh, it, the the experience that Muslims are having in the United States right now is definitely one that has shifted substantially over the past several months, and that's held out in the data. And so from a physical security perspective, when we think about these women we spent time with, they're living substantially different lives, lives where they feel victimized and targeted on a regular basis, and lives where the, all the work that they put into being good citizens and good neighbors is being returned with um, hateful rhetoric and sometimes even violence. And that's, that's heartbreaking for them. I think they perceive this as a form of violation in a social contract where they pull their weight in society, they vote, they participate in voluntary organizations, they feel themselves to be American and they, they treat other Americans with great generosity. And yet they are stigmatized. The terrorist threat is generalized to their very normal behavior where they are constantly surveilled and held under suspicion. And as we know from the experiences of other minority groups, that has very serious impacts on the psychological and physical lives that these women can lead. And I believe that this, this targeted population provides a real litmus test for our democracy. If we can't treat the most marginalized groups with grace and the dignity that they deserve as human beings, we are risking the health of our democracy, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a threat that we can see in the way that we treat our fellow citizens. And it's very like, you know, at, at this point, it's very, that threat is fairly patent in terms of like, you know, for instance, what we're seeing via uh, via the social movements that are now being sort of present in like it, a lot of what we've what we've seen like over the course of like you know kind of essentially since Trump has been elected we've seen like you know kind of the advent of Black Lives Matter we've seen like you know for instance the Women's March and throughout all of these activities we've also seen a lot of like you know kind of Muslims engaged through this right and and probably like most notoriously is actually like you know the prevalence of uh, Sarsour and like you know courting the Women's March but also courting a lot of these other activities that are engaging in social justice so. For for, for us, it's really interesting to see, in some respects, after the book, uh, Muslim Americans, like, you know, kind of almost step it up a notch as well. Not that they weren't participating beforehand, but at this point, they're participating even more, and they're very much part of this new dialogue that's coming up. Um, and 
I think Sarah can actually speak to this a lot more, to be honest, because she sort of talks about this, you know, kind of Islamic ethics and the norms of participation that we've actually seen develop, especially among Muslims in the United States. There are a, a number of ways that Muslims in the U.S. are a distinctive and unique uh, Muslim community around the world. Uh, now living in Europe and seeing not only firsthand um, how Muslim communities differ, but also the way that the sort of majority non-Muslim population responds to them. There are several aspects that our research reveals uh, that uh, are continuing, I think, to hold some durable truth. Uh, one aspect is that in the U.S., the values on intersectional identities amongst Muslim Americans have really taken a high precedence. Uh, the interest in Muslim Americans aligning with Black Americans and aligning with gay Americans and the ways that the uh, marginalized groups have come together at times, even when some may believe their Islamic morality might prevent them from doing so. Uh, we've really seen in the US that these groups have banded together in ways uh, that are important when they stand up for their rights and they stand up for themselves uh, within the majority non-Muslim uh, America. The other way that the American Muslim community is quite distinct and unusual is in the, the way that it offers linguistic, ethnic, uh, national diversities. Um, the focus groups and the survey that we conducted revealed over and over that people have this wide diversity of experiences, of backgrounds, of interests, of food and language and all of the ways that America is rich and beautiful and yet their uh, feeling of being American really superseded all of these differences. And you just don't see that around the world, um, at, least not, uh, at least not in the European context. There is some research that came out in 2012 from Jupe and Calfano, where they find that in the American context, this experience with discrimination constitutes a form of like, civic education in the American context, where um, the experiences are actually so associated with higher rates of mobilization and engagement. And so we don't yet know if that's generalizable to other contexts, but we have, I think what Sarah's saying is that there's so much in the American experience and in the wide variety of experiences that we saw reflected in the women we spoke that make context. Yeah, I mean, you, you had talked about um, the unique American experience, and you, had, you said that you had 17 focus groups with 72 women in seven American cities. It's hard to choose, but are, what are some... Uh, stories uh, or personal uh, and powerful stories that you heard from the women you interviewed. And for me, it's, I, it's for me one of the most interesting ones was uh, the focus group in Houston um, that really sort of correlated to some of the findings that we actually ultimately had about political participation and the incentives in terms of like you know kind of which directions uh, Muslim Americans would be voting. I, I distinctly remember um, speaking to a participant who was engaged in uh, employment in a security company, right? And who basically, she wore the hijab, you know, she liked going to the gun range. She liked doing all these things that were kind of prototypically conservative and tea party. And, you know, she was very open about the fact that, you know, if, if she had her way and if she had, if the tea party actually represented her interests or if like, for instance, the conservative movement or let's say more religiously oriented parties in the United States represent her interests, she might actually be, you know, kind of, more sympathetic to voting for, let's say, the Republican Party, right? But she felt really alienated from the party that had typically actually represented her values because it had become so anti-Muslim. Even though prior to 9-11, 
pretty much overwhelmingly Muslim Americans voted Republican, right? So, so this shift really does coincide with 9-11, with the shift in terms of our security interests, with the racialization of the terrorist threat and like, you know, effectively racialization of Muslim identity as well to make it coincide with terrorism and security issues in a way that's really distinct and unique. Um, and we see this huge shift towards like, you know, kind of either not voting, which is actually fairly mainstream like, you know, for a lot of Americans, or basically voting for Democrats, right? Because, you know, at least they're not actively penalizing that particular religious identity, although their values might not necessarily align. So this kind of speaks to what Sarah was talking about, is that we actually see the Muslim American community, especially the active women we see here, aligning with social justice, like, you know, kind of movements, aligning with the LGBTQ, like, you know, kind of movement and forth. And yet that's not necessarily prototypically what you see in like, you know, for instance, in political Islam or in Islamic countries or in the Muslim faith as well. So for me, it was fascinating to hear, you know, kind of uh, women tell me I would vote Republican, but they wouldn't represent me and they wouldn't like represent my interests. So I either choose not to vote or I vote Democrat. And her specific anecdote was going to the gun range and all of a sudden having people tell her that she can't attend it anymore, that she can't go there and effectively blocking her from going and like, you know, shooting her gun, which she'd been able to do for the longest time, right? Because all of a sudden her identity was a problem, whereas, you know, a few months or a few years back, right, it was not a big deal. <laughs> I remember distinctly a focus group interview that I did in New York City. And we were sitting in Bryant Park and there was a, a table of, I think, five or six women. And they were talking about how they felt like wearing the headscarf was uh, something that required a lot of strength because people would make comments or you could be hassled for it. And, you know, TSA and the airport was always a special category of discussion in every one of our focus groups, I think. And they were talking about how they really felt that that required a kind of bravery and a kind of strength to keep wearing the headscarf, especially after September 11th and at times when society would otherwise indicate that they should take it off, that they should remove themselves from this kind of visible visibility uh, in, in the public sphere. And after sitting there, the, this man starts walking by and making a lot of noise. And uh, he starts screaming at the, the women. He said, you better remember where you came from. And starts really uh, kind of hassling the women as he's walking past. He didn't stop. He just kept walking. And the women did not skip a beat. They just kept talking and they saw him and they acknowledged that this had happened. But then they said, essentially, the strength that is required to wear the headscarf is pressing and it is relevant and is immediate in our everyday lives. And it came to um, really epitomize to my mind the, the ways that women encounter this kind of harassment or they encounter this kind of uh, contestation or struggle or resistance in mainstream Americana uh, readily and easily, even in a place as diverse as, as New York City on a you know Saturday morning. Yeah, and I think when I think back to the focus groups, I can remember something distinctive about every single one of them. The one that stands out in my mind though, for the uniqueness of the experience, were a series of focus groups that we did in Chicago and Vaz was also present at these focus groups. We did some focus groups. Um, this is the only place where we had an exclusively black group of women talking to us. And that conversation revealed some interesting um, differences in terms of the diverse groups of Muslims and how they perceive authenticity and faith and practice. So within the, within the black population, you often get converts. And we, that led to a conversation about who is 
a truer Muslim, immigrants who come here as Muslims and don't think about the practice necessarily, they're socialized into it, or converts who make a deliberate choice and um, by virtue of that deliberate choice have greater authenticity in their practice. So it revealed this interesting convert, non-convert, immigrant, native division that I didn't necessarily know existed up to that point. And it added to many of our observations about this diverse Muslim community in the United States and what race, immigrant status, and convert status mean to Muslim American women. I also remember being struck by the way that Muslim American and black women talked about how their race is a primary identity. And in discussing the headscarf and how difficult the headscarf is to wear and the experiences like Sarah was just describing, they would say, I can always take off my headscarf, but I can't take off my skin. Hmm. And so they would identify primarily as black Muslim American women. And that was because that they, they perceived their race as being the most central identity in the eyes of others. I'm going to follow up on that and ask Ab to also clarify. Um, there's a part in the book where we actually talk about these hyphenated identities as well. And I do think that like, you know, kind of African-American women played much more with like, you know, for instance, whether Muslim came first or like, you know, whether like, you know, American came first. And then of course there was this idea of also like, you know, for instance, an ethnic marker too, right? Mm -hmm. I think um, because African-Americans are used to thinking about these, their, their competing identities and how their identities may pull them in different directions and the different lived realities that they have as African-Americans compared to other racial groups. And so for them, I think that this, this conversation was something they thought about before and it was natural to them to think about prioritizing identity. Whereas other white Muslims we talked to would say, what, American, Muslim, Muslim, American, does it matter? It's just, they're just adjectives. Um, it meant much more. These identity, identity markers seem to communicate much more to the racial minorities in our sample. Makes sense, makes sense. So now I just want to put a thought experiment out there. If, uh, imagine if you had 30 seconds to create a public service announcement and no matter what, anyone was looking at their phones, they were watching something on Netflix, they're watching television, they're listening to the radio, whatever, you had the opportunity to spread a message based on your book, based on your research, to the American people. What would that be? One of the most important findings from our book that I think merits further research and the idea that the mosque is a site where political activity happens, where socialization happens, and that this is not something to be feared, but is in fact something to be cultivated and something to be embraced. Because like churches in the U.S. or like synagogues in the U.S. or like other sites of worship for any other religious group in the United States, the institutions that are protected in our public spaces for religious worship are also spaces that become sites where people learn from each other, they learn who they are, and they learn who they can be into their futures and how to grasp that future as a political uh, tool for themselves. And I think that the, the mosques that we all visited uh, during our research uh, visits and during our focus group interviews welcomed us wholeheartedly. They supported us. They provided opportunities for us to learn not only about the participants in the focus groups, but also the congregations and the kinds of activities that they do to help make themselves and each other stronger Americans for a stronger America. So I'll follow up on that and basically say that at the end of the day, you know, this really speaks to the question that, you know, kind of our, um, our institutions are important and like the master part of that. And to keep, you know, for instance, 
American democracy pluralist, you, you really have to start in terms of like the participation in those institutions as well. Yes, and I'd say that um, thinking about the experiences of othering that these women have had, it warns us that the open political institutions that we so pride ourselves in and the guaranteed protection for minorities may disappear if we, the majority, do not stand up and insist on their inclusion in the social and political sphere. We, the non-Muslim Americans, have a responsibility to advocate for inclusive institutions for minorities and to incorporate them into the democratic process. And if we wanna pride ourselves on being a true democracy, that can only happen if every element of our society has full and equal access to society and to participation in our political institutions. Great, great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this We could talk for a, a long time on this topic. It's a fascinating uh, book that you have all written and with uh, major implications for Americans as well as Europeans. I think that they, they can learn a thing or two <laughs> from, from our model. Um, so I want to thank you all for uh, coming on. And uh, this was, uh, your work is very inspiring. Thank you for having us. That was Boz Wellborn, Aubrey Westfall, and Sarah Tobin, co-authors of The Politics of the Headscarf in the United States. As a loyal listener to this podcast, we would like to offer you a special 30% discount to purchase the book on our website. Go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and enter the promotion code 09POD at checkout. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>